head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, I want to talk about the tech giants, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, and Meta, aka Facebook. These are the six biggest tech companies in the world. So what should we think of them? Well, if you're an investor, the one thing you think about these companies is, hey, they are really dragging down my portfolio right now. In fact, all six stocks are down year-to-date, somewhere between 4% Apple and down 22% Tesla. Meanwhile, if you're an anti-tech kind of person, the one thing you know about these companies is that they're bad. And there's no question that these companies have their ethical quandaries, whether it's Facebook's content moderation policy or Tesla and Amazon's relationship with labor, Apple and China. But personally, I don't like to define these companies in exclusive binaries, up or down, good or bad. Above all, I just find them fascinating. Like, yes, Amazon has anti-union practices that I find extremely sketchy, but it's also provided just about the most critical service of any company I can think of during the pandemic. When I needed groceries, when I needed toilet paper, when I needed rapid tests, Amazon was there. And yes, as we've talked about on this podcast, Elon Musk can be a wackadoodle online, but he's also probably single-handedly responsible for pulling forward the electric future for cars in the United States by at least several years. Amazon and Tesla are complicated, and complicated is interesting. So for today's episode, I wanted to see the forest behind the burning, falling tree that is January's plunging stock market. I wanted someone to help me identify the most interesting and essential thing about six of the most interesting and essential companies in the world. 
And to do that, we have Shira Oviday. Shira writes the On Tech newsletter for the New York Times. And in today's episode, we hit each of the six biggest tech companies in the world in reverse order. Meta, Tesla, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and right there at the top, Apple. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Shira Oviday, welcome to the podcast. Derek, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. So Shira, what I wanted to do with you is to count down the six largest tech companies in America from six to one. And I wanted to chat with you about what we consider the single most interesting thing about each of these companies. And for my own purposes, because I wanted to make sure that I was saying something different about each company, I tried to boil down my analysis of each company down to a single word. So uh, that is a gimmick. And if you disagree with any of these words, you should feel very, very free to tell me uh, either that the gimmick is stupid uh, or that the words themselves are uh, are off base. So- I am 100% pro the Derek Thompson shorthand. We are pro gimmick here on Plain English. Thank yes. you very, very much. Um, you were pre-screened to give that answer, Shira. So thank you. <laughs> we're, start, we're gonna start with number six, which is Meta, AKA Facebook. My one word for meta is anxiety. I don't think any other company in America has such a gap between their corporate might and their cultural anxiety. Like this is a $800 billion company with a massive, incredible online advertising business. But when we peek into Facebook itself, the company always feels so like rife with angst. And in particular, you've written about their anxiety over losing young people and why you think that's such a key part of understanding uh, the, the psychology of this firm. Why is Facebook so obsessed with young people? It's, it's fascinating. So in a way, Facebook or Meta, and I'm just going to call them Facebook for simplicity's sake, Do it. It, it kind of encapsulates this duality of all of the tech giants at this moment in time, that they're both so powerful and rich and potentially, you know, at least the way they look, they seem like permanent empires in a way that maybe no corporate titans have ever been in the history of the United States. And at the same time, you can see vulnerability everywhere. And whether that's internal vulnerability um, or external in the form of sort of regulation or public hatred or this sort of cultural tension about the rich and powerful. So if I start with Facebook, you're right that almost for the entire history of Facebook as a public company, it has been clear that this company has like changed the way that we interact with one another and the ways that we get information. And it is maybe the best business model ever created on the internet with the possible exception of Google. Um, but the things that you hear from Facebook, from inside Facebook, is just this anxiety, to use your word, to steal your word, about losing relevance with young people. And again, that has been true since the very beginning of Facebook, that the big anxiety around Facebook's um, IPO was about questions like, 
okay, are they my space? Meaning, are they a hot thing that will fade? Or will they remain, will they stay relevant on smartphones? Will they be able to make money as more people use Facebook on smartphones? And to Facebook's credit, either through acquisition or savvy or brute force or whatever you want to call it, it has remained a relevant internet superpower for 10 years, which is a hard thing to do. It's interesting to me because Facebook changing its name to Meta, it's hard to think of a company this powerful and this successful announcing that they're changing their entire corporate identity to a thing that doesn't exist yet, right? Like imagine Steve Jobs saying in 2002, five years before the iPhone debuted, hey everyone, Apple is changing its name to smartphone. People are like, what's a smartphone? He's like, well, it's the next desktop and uh, we don't really, it doesn't really exist yet and we haven't really made one yet, but trust me, it's gonna be huge and we're gonna build it. Like, Apple didn't do that. It just quietly built the actual iPhone, kept the name Apple, released the iPhone, and as we're gonna talk about in like 20 minutes, just became the iPhone company. Like, that's what normal companies do when they don't have branding catastrophes. And I was asking some people online for some examples of what Facebook is doing, which is being an incredibly successful, as I said, company that also feels this deep anxiety to rebrand itself for the world and also to invest behind that rebranding. The best example that I got, and I would love to know what you think about, whether you think this matches your impression of Facebook, is Dansk Naturgas, which is a Danish multinational power company, bear with me, In 2017, the company decided to phase out its use of coal for power generation, so it sold off its oil and gas business, announced its intention to transition entirely to renewable energy, and renamed the company Orsted, and it's now the world's largest developer of offshore wind power. And so someone gave me this example, and I was like, wait, Facebook is like an oil and gas company of the information space trying to tell the world that it's going to become the number one producer of solar energy or wind turbines, right? It's like embarrassed in a way, by the way that its current success is translating to cultural reputation, and it's trying to get ahead of that by sort of picking a point in the future where it's going to invent this new business and saying, hey, just call us that. Is that kind of like what you see happening on the ground? Boy, you're really, you're really testing my knowledge of Danish here. Um, <laughs> so, I, I have no idea if I was pronouncing that right. I was just trying to give a kind of Danish no. flair to what I'm I mean, reading online. The, the fact that you have to sort of go to Danish power companies shows you how unusual this is. Um, yes. the, and I think the one place where that comparison maybe phrase a little bit is that uh, wind and other kinds of green energy actually exist today. Yes. And the metaverse is more or less a theoretical concept right now with a lot of jargon and investor hype around it. Um, but look, I, I, in a way, a part of me respects what Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are trying to do. They know the sort of classic Clayton Christensen innovators dilemma of companies that become really successful in one area and it impedes their ability to figure out the next big thing, that they they are handcuffed by success. The same way as, to use the energy company analogy, that if you're the biggest fossil fuel company in the world, it is extremely difficult to decide, you know what, we don't think fossil fuels are the future, will become a, I mean, the, the meta thing is almost like, we'll become a company that makes energy from garbage, right? Mm-hmm. A sort of unproven technology. And, and sorry, maybe that is a proven technology. I think that's a great point. And and it should be said that especially if some of the later uh, companies we're going to talk about, like Apple and Microsoft and Alphabet, uh, Meta is still run 
by the person that founded the company. And if you're doing this sort of Harvard Business School study of, uh, of Facebook and, excuse me, Meta, and it turns out to be a success, you're going to look back and say, this is why founders need to stay on as chief executives, because it is easier for them to disrupt themselves than it is sometimes potentially for a chief executive to come in and disrupt the company that they're uh, acquiring from the founder. So I, I, I agree. Mark is, love him, love him or hate him, this is a bold and uh, bizarre, frankly, strategy that, that w- we'll see if it pays off. All right, let's go to number five. Number five is Tesla. And my one word for Tesla is future. This is a company that is being extraordinarily valued as a multiple of its earnings and its revenue because of what people think the future of the electric vehicle market would look like. And if you want to see this potential future of the American EV market, look at Norway. Uh, You wrote an article about Norway's electric vehicle market last year, 2021, in Norway. Only 8% of new cars ran purely on conventional gas or diesel. Only 8%. Two-thirds of new cars sold in Norway last year were electric. That compares to 3% in the US. How did this happen? How did Norway become the global capital for electric vehicles? It's a really fascinating story because when I saw that statistic, I mean, I knew directionally that Norway is the biggest um, market for electric vehicles, at least by by market share. But that number, right, that the, the conventional um, car is basically an endangered species in Norway. And the, the answer is basically, Norway has some unique setup in terms of you know taxes on cars and gasoline purchases are extremely high but they also made some really savvy decisions that kind of started this flywheel right to sort of use the amazon term um, of success begetting more success so the, the the practical answer is norway basically cut taxes to zero on new purchases of electric cars, and uh, car taxes are very high in Norway. They also gave benefits to EV drivers, things like they could skip some tolls, they could get some parking for free in uh, municipal settings, you could drive on on, um, on sort of HOV lanes, that kind of thing. So it made um, electric cars much more um, appealing to new car owners. And it was really smart that kind they Norway decided just to sort of make this as simple as possible. Let's focus on new cars, on getting as many people who are buying new cars to think about an EV uh, at the top of their list of potential purchases. And let's not worry right now about um, all these understandable questions that also may get in the way of 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 new invention, whether that's, well, what do we do about cars on the road? And what do we do about rural areas? And what do we do about, is this a tax break for the wealthy? You know, all these things that are, again, understandable concerns, but that also are sort of an impediment to just sort of moving faster. Um, And then once some of those systems were in place, more car companies, including Tesla and Chinese automakers and um, European conventional car makers, they started to make more appealing uh, electric vehicle options that's sold in Norway. And again, the, the end result is that in relatively short order, five, six, seven years, they are now you know, at a place where at least for new cars, the um, conventional gasoline powered car, car is just sort of a tiny minority of sales. 
Yeah, it's really amazing. You're talking about the Bezos flywheel where growth begets growth and you know this tiny little trend ends up becoming this, this, this huge wave. You're clearly seeing that in Norway. When I look to whether the U.S. can learn from Norway, Norway's got its subsidies, it's got its tax benefits. We also have some subsidies and tax benefits for electric car purchases. What seems really important that you point out is that Norway has really high gas taxes. And if you can cut, and that might help drive people, no pun intended, toward electric cars because there's this huge delta between the price of gas and the price of electricity. The thing that's happening in the US that I'm so interested by and and that that makes me think that even though Tesla is just at a ridiculous stock value right now, given where its revenue and, and profits are, maybe it's not so crazy to think of them as a top five, top six tech company. I don't know if, if you're a football fan or if you're watching a lot of TV these days, but I'm a huge NFL fan and I've been watching the games from this weekend, the previous playoff weekends. Judging from television ads alone, the entire U.S. auto industry is already electric. Like literally every single car advertisement is electric this, electric that, hybrid. Here's a joke about plugins. Like EVs, it's fascinating to me, account for just 3% of new passenger vehicle purchases in the U.S., but 100% of all the auto messaging in commercials. And that just tells me that, you know, you have a lot of people in the advertising commercial spaces, looking at Tesla's stock price and looking at Norway and seeing, holy moly, we need to transition as fast as possible and essentially uh, disrupt ourselves and make sure that that all these you know gas and, and diesel powered uh, cars that we've been selling like hotcakes the last few years, um, uh, we essentially move away from those markets uh, in in the next decade. Anything else that, that you see with Tesla that fascinates you? Well, I think to your point about seeing all the marketing from traditional car makers, we talk a lot about the destructive effects of bubbles, but this is one potential beneficial impact of a bubble. There is definitely a bubble right now, investment bubble in electric vehicles where you have companies that have basically almost never sold any electric vehicles that are valued at the like many, many billions of dollars. But what that does do is that helps encourage car makers to sort of say, okay, we're we're doing that too. Uh, and, and to make it real, you know, last year when General Motors said, we're going to stop making conventional gas powered cars, that was at least in part because Investors love that, right? Um, you know, it's that kind of hype and bubble that is, I mean, it, it will be destructive. It will probably end unhappily. But in the meantime, it is producing this sort of energy and enthusiasm and reality around electric cars. I, I totally agree with that. Kevin Roos has been on this podcast. He made the really interesting point that love Elon Musk or hate him, and we're not going to fully get into that analysis, but he has clearly changed the cultural coding of electric vehicles, that 10 or 15 years ago, electric vehicles were four crunchy granola types who you know, wore their Birkenstocks and voted lefty and loved the Green Party and had their stickers on their backpacks. And he's totally changed the vibe of electric such that you now have Rivian, the electric uh, pickup car, com- uh, pickup truck uh, manufacturer that's been valued at tens of billions of dollars before they barely even sold a single product. You've got Ford rushing into build electric F-150s and they can barely sell them fast enough. It's really astonishing how quickly the sort of political valence of electric vehicles has changed in the U.S. And considering how much, uh, I think something like you know, uh, 
what is it, two thirds of, uh, of of emissions come from transportation in the U.S. It's it's quite a mitzvah to be able to transition that uh, to electric. Let's go to number four on the list. Number four is Amazon. My one word for Amazon is American. Most of the companies on this list are truly international companies. They make an enormous amount of money outside the U.S. Amazon is different. Last quarter, Amazon made $65 billion in North American revenue compared to only $29 billion in international revenue. That is really bizarrely American, very bizarrely focused on North America for a tech company in this list. Shira, you were the one who pointed this out to me. Tell me a little bit about the degree to which Amazon's revenue is significantly more constrained to a few countries than other names on this list. Yeah, it's sort of strange, right? When you sort of sit from the vantage point of you and me and other Americans, we feel like Amazon is sort of ubiquitous and all-powerful. But to your point, most of America's technology giants are are global. Their products are popular globally. Uh, they make you know, significant revenue outside the United States. Um, at Amazon, about 90% of their revenue comes from four countries, uh, the US, Britain, Japan, and Germany. And give me that stat that one order. more time. In, it's 90%, wow. 90% of Amazon's revenue, give or take. And look, some of that is their cloud computing operation, but um, even Amazon's e-commerce operation, right? It is really outside of those four countries, not the juggernaut that we've come to expect in the United States. And, and partly because Amazon faces real domestic competition in places like Latin America and South Korea from a company called Kupang, in, um, in parts of Africa, in India. If you go around the globe, there are e-commerce juggernauts that are not named Amazon. It's so interesting because Amazon is the everything store, but it's not the everything store everywhere. China has its own, quote unquote, Amazon. It's called Alibaba. Brazil has its own. France has its own. Different countries have their own e-commerce giants. And it's interesting here to compare Amazon to the other uh, big tech companies on this list because it's so much harder to scale commerce globally than it is to scale information right? A video that I make can easily be seen in Canada on YouTube. A TikTok that some French teenager makes can easily be watched in Los Angeles. But if you're talking about delivering socks, right? You need a local warehouse that has the socks. You need a truck that drives from that local warehouse with the socks. You need a person to walk out of that truck and drop off the socks at his doorstep. That doesn't scale globally just with bits. You need to hire those people and buy those trucks. And as a result, it's kind of interesting that, that e-commerce is so much harder to scale globally, potentially, than a lot of the other products that these tech companies have gone into. Within the US, however, it should be said, Amazon is dominating in categories that nobody thought it could dominate in. I just saw a statistic that said that Amazon sells 12% of American apparel. That means one out of every nine or one out of every eight articles of clothing bought in the US is now bought from Amazon. That is crazy. Yeah. And I'm also old enough to remember that all of the categories that people said, oh, people will never buy X online, right? People will never buy car parts. People will never buy sporting goods. People will never buy clothes. People will never buy cars. People will never buy groceries. And it turns out people, if it's convenient enough, people will pretty much buy anything online. 
This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. All right, number three on this list is Alphabet, a.k.a. the holding company that includes Google. My one word for Alphabet is longevity. Uh, I have Is Google advertising revenue ever going to stop growing at this ridiculous, tremendous place? I feel like there have been so many rounds of when will search advertising revenue peak? When will Google peak? Has Google peaked yet? Google's just peaked. And it just keeps growing Shira, how long do you think this empire can last? I'm I'm reluctant to to say because you're right. It, similar to Facebook, people have been saying for a very long time about Google. Well, this can't possibly last. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you that when when smartphones start first started to become prevalent, many people, many smart even tech people, predicted that that might be the end for Google because people would search less if they knew, well, if I need to um, find travel uh, airline tickets to Hawaii, I'll go to the Travelocity app. If I need to shop, I'll go to the Amazon app, right? That apps would replace search. And, you know, that did happen for the most part to Baidu, which is sort of the, the big, was and is the big search engine in China, but it didn't happen to Google. And again, I think Google, like Facebook, has um, been far more resilient than a lot of people thought. Part of it is they kept finding new places to extend their advertising empire, um, YouTube maybe being the, the most prominent example. And also, I mean, Google is really good at indexing 
the world's information, all the kinds of information. And then that includes now things like, um, you know, mapping and local services and YouTube and other kinds of videos. And again, if you listen to YouTube, uh, to the critics of Google, they'll say, well, this is a company that has sort of tilted the game to its advantage, right? That um, th- that's all the the underpinnings of antitrust arguments about Google and other big tech companies is basically they they kind of cheat to win, right? That if you're successful, you can park the the information that you control at the top of search results. You can uh, kind of rig internet auctions as um, Google is alleged to do in some of some lawsuits. You can rig internet auctions so that Google uh, makes money no matter what, right? So that's the question about something like Google is, um, is their longevity due to being really good at what they do or because they're cheating? I'm really glad you said that because I don't want this to be, uh, oh, look how wonderful and beneficent these companies are. No, Google has been sued for anti-competitive practices. Amazon has been sued for anti-competitive practices. Microsoft, which we're going to talk about right now, was not only sued for anti-competitive practices, the United States versus Microsoft Corporation, DC Circuit Court, 2001, the US won a law case against Microsoft, uh, accusing it of illegally using its monopoly power in the PC market. These companies are extremely powerful and they often use their power not for good. So speaking of Microsoft, maybe not the introduction that company wants me to give them, Microsoft, my word for them is underrated. Microsoft is so interesting because it's profoundly unsexy, yet ludicrously profitable. It's the second biggest company in the world. At times in the last few years, it's been more valuable than Apple. It has, in several times in its history, been the most valuable company nominally in the history of commerce. But nobody talks about Microsoft. No one's like, hey, you know how to get some cheap clicks on the internet? Is throw Microsoft in a headline. You know how to get some cheap podcast listens? Let's do a a whole four-hour segment on Microsoft. It's just really interesting, the gap between the cultural sexiness of this company and its value. So, Shira, what does Microsoft do? Look, what what they do fundamentally, and this is one reason why they're profoundly unsexy, is they make software for businesses. And that immediately puts people to sleep. But for all the talk about, you know, Xbox and um, LinkedIn, or they just bought, right, Activision, this large video game company, fundamentally, Microsoft sells pretty boring but essential software to businesses, whether it's, you know, Windows uh, computer licenses or Excel spreadsheet software or server software or increasingly uh, cloud software to help businesses digitize what they do, databases, chat apps. But I remember an investor years, an investor in software companies years ago called them garbage collector businesses. That and his basic point was that nobody will ever be excited about garbage collection, but everybody in the world needs to have garbage collected. And that can be a really lucrative business. I want to ask you about their their acquisition of Activision. Uh, this is the gaming company that makes World of Warcraft, Diablo, Call of Duty. I mean, on the one hand, I think if if you have a simplistic and sort of probably unintelligent read of Microsoft, you're like, this is a productivity company. 
their job is to empower employees to be more productive. Why are they also investing in video games? Uh, but the truth is that they already have LinkedIn. They already have Xbox. They're diversifying um, across a couple different business categories. And one category they seem to want to grow a lot is, the, is their gaming category. Um, what are they doing in gaming right now? And I mean, I, I have to use the word, I'm sorry, but are they talking about this acquisition of uh, Activision akin to the construction of a, a metaverse strategy for Microsoft? Well, they, they do. They did use that word because it is mandatory to use the word metaverse. <laughs> it, it gets you a few pennies of um, stock price increase. But, yes. you know, fundamentally, at least in the short term, it's about consolidating video games, which maybe is, again, not super sexy, but they own the Xbox video game console. And you can imagine this sort of vertically integrated Microsoft video game empire where they have these consoles that are um, very popular you know, video gaming is one of the most lucrative entertainment industries in the world, much more lucrative than uh, the movie business, for example. So you have you own the Xbox console and you own a bunch of exclusive video games, must have video games through this console. So you become something like um, Netflix if Netflix also owned Roku. Right? Mm. They, they have the system through which you play video games and a bunch of must-have video game titles and, and charge a subscription to access those on a monthly basis. So you can see the, the value in that, even if it doesn't become, you know, again, the, the metaverse word. Right. And this actually juxtaposes very nicely with number one on our list, which is Apple. My number one word for Apple is focus. So let's compare it with Microsoft. Microsoft has Windows, they have operating systems, they also have LinkedIn, they also have Xbox, they also have video games, they also have cloud services, they're in a, they have their fingers in a bunch of different revenue pots. Now compare that with Apple. Apple makes computers. They make computers for your desk and they make computers for your pocket. That's what they do. They make computers and then they sell stuff around computers, whether it's services or ancillary products like the, uh, like the AirPods that I have in my ears. And that is the company. And it is remarkable the degree to which, if you look at their earnings reports, this is a company that basically makes iPhones and a few Mac computers on the side. Do you think that this focus is key to the company's success in the future? Or do you think that no company at the $3 trillion level can really sustain that kind of growth unless they grow into different products, whether it's a television or a car? I think that's the fundamental question of Apple. And I wrote a column, I think six years ago, my last job that basically called the top for Apple. That basically said, look, the iPhone is the sun around which Apple, uh, Apple's ecosystem uh, orbits, and smartphone growth even then had basically run out of room, and that is true, much more true in 2022 than it was in 2015 or 16 when I wrote that. that smartphones, smartphone growth is basically stalled globally, and yet Apple has figured out a way to keep growing by selling the same computer to the same people who already owned one and also a bunch of add-on services and, and hardware on top of that, right? So you, 
Apple has talked a lot, I talked a big game about diversifying, about oh, we're not just the iPhone company anymore. We also sell like apps and AirPods and HomePods and Macs. But the fact is that almost everything that Apple sells is sold to somebody as an add-on to an iPhone, right? So mm. that might be headphones or iCloud subscriptions or anything that you buy through your iPhone for which Apple gets a 30% cut or a 15% cut. Um, and, and that might even extend to things like the iPad or the Mac computer, right? This is a company that has built a $3 trillion empire, not on computers, but on a computer on the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And at a time when I would have thought that game is played out, Apple has turned that focus into a strength rather than a weakness. So if you ask me, can they keep doing that into the future? I, I really, I don't know the answer. I, I would have said no, except that Apple's been doing it for six years, um, six years longer than I thought they could. <laughs> right. Uh, jumping into uh, their last uh, 10Q, their last financial statement. In 2021, Apple made $365 billion. That's fucking crazy. Um, $191 billion came from the iPhone. So already you have 55-ish percent of their revenue comes just from the iPhone. But like you said, you can't stop there. Wearables, home, and accessories is another $40 billion. A lot of that is stuff you buy for your iPhone, whether it's a dongle or AirPods. Services, another $70 billion. Well, a lot of those services are things that people buy because they need to get more value out of the iPhone that they already own. Then you get into stuff like the Mac, $35 billion. The iPad, another $30 billion. A lot of people likely stick with their MacBook Air or stick with the iPad in part because it pairs with the iPhone. So I'm not suggesting that this company would be worth like $0 if Steve Jobs never invented the iPhone in, in 2007. Obviously, the company was very successful in its previous few decades. But as you're saying, it really is astonishing the degree to which, perfect metaphor that you employed, the iPhone is the sun around which revolves this $3 trillion solar system. I want to do another just little rant on Apple because juxtaposing it to the other companies in this pantheon of six most powerful tech companies in the world, Apple is so different. Like Facebook, Meta has a youth problem. Does Apple? No, the opposite. 88% of US teens surveyed uh, in the last teen report said they already had an iPhone and 90% said their next phone would be an iPhone. No teen problem here. How about diversity? Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, they all do a bunch of different things or want to do a bunch of different things. As you said, Apple's a phone company and it makes some stuff around the phone. Tesla, their valuation is all about the future. Apple's valuation isn't about the future. It's about the fact that they sell an extraordinarily profitable little plate of glass that we all need to have in our pockets. Finally, Amazon, and I'm so glad you told me this, it's one of the most interesting things I learned from you, highly domestic company, an overwhelming amount of its revenue comes uh, from North America. With Apple, I'm scrolling right down to their page, net sales by reportable segment, America versus Europe, only 23% of their revenue comes from the Americas. This is a global, global country. So it's just remarkable the degree to which Apple isn't just number one on this list, but is really unique as a tech company compared to its peers. 
It's it is a really fascinating company, and I will just say that I I do think a large at least some portion of Apple's value is tied to the future because I think there is an expectation. Well, at what Apple did to the iPhone, it can also do with you know the these sort of eyeglass internet connected eyeglasses or whatever the next potential computing interface is going to be. What Apple did to the iPhone, maybe it can also do that with um, electric and driverless cars, right? So these are all projects that Apple is working on secretly. Um, in its little little hardware labs, um, and and I do think there is an expectation that because Apple has been so successful in many points of its history of popularizing technologies and taking niche technologies and making them mainstream, that it can do that to computers for your face. It can do that to electric uh, and driverless cars. I, I think I'm, I'm not so sure those things play to Apple's strengths, particularly cars, but. We'll see. Again, I've been wrong about Apple before, and I'm reluctant to be wrong about them again. Yep. Just to clean up a mistake that I just made, because we believe in accountability here in plain English, uh, I said 23% of Apple's revenue comes from the Americas. That is wrong. It is 41%. Nonetheless, that means that 59% of Apple's revenue comes from outside of North and South America. That is a hugely international business. And look, it is the one, I'll just say one more thing to Apple's credit. They are the only or the one large American technology company that has been wildly successful in China. They alone. Mm. That's a great point. Last question for you. You just walked through the six biggest tech companies in America. Uh, I would love to know what you think is the most interesting tech company here in the US, North America's, around the world, the most interesting tech company that we have not talked about today. I think the the sexy answer would be ByteDance, which is the Chinese company that owns TikTok. But I'm actually going to go for an an underdog and say Shopify, Mm. which is a Canadian company that makes software for small businesses to kind of set up their own websites, their own e-commerce operations, to do things like market on uh, Facebook and other places online at kind of the, the click of a button. Shira, what's the most interesting thing uh, for listeners to take away about Shopify? So there's a whole bunch of companies, and that includes Facebook and Google and Uber and maybe Amazon to a certain extent, that are all making a very similar pitch, which is they're the ones that are going to help small businesses, the, the proverbial shop around the corner, become the digitized storefront of the the 21st century. They're the ones that are going to help your local cheese shop or your local toy store basically outfox Amazon, be the local Amazon of toys and cheese. And Shopify is actually doing that, that they are providing all of these small businesses the sort of the easy web storefront, in some cases, the sort of logistics behind the scenes, uh, logistics and shipping might, the marketing tools to actually be the kind of local Amazon um, where they can actually both sell their products to people online and in many cases have it delivered to people's homes powered by Shopify software. And that's a really powerful force potentially for our local economies. Uh, to keep them thriving. And also, frankly, it is a huge potential uh, revenue opportunity for any company that kind of figures out how to do Amazon for local. That's a lovely place to land because, you know, these companies today, Meta, Tesla, Amazon, th- these are Goliaths. These are huge, huge behemoths of com- of a company. 
But it's nice to know that there are still Davids that can make billions and billions of dollars competing against them. Because you roll back the clock far enough and all these companies were Davids once. You know, it was Facebook, can they beat MySpace? Tesla, can they beat Ford? Uh, Amazon, can they beat Walmart? So it's nice to know that the the next crop, the next generation um, of tech goliaths are, are still growing and that the uh, the shade cast by these large companies isn't isn't so vast that it's that it's uh, suffocating the uh, the growth in the at the bottom of the forest. Anyway, Shira, thank you so so much for for talking to me through uh, these companies today, and and we'll have you back in the pod very soon. Thank you, Derek. Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. Thank you so much for listening to this show. If you like us, follow us on Spotify, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We will be back with our second episode this week on Friday. We will see you then. 